if you had a sewing circle and uh, there was someone in the church that was a seamstress that wasn't involved uh, and you were sitting next to her at a Christmas dinner and started talking, you might invite her, hey, why don't you come and talk to our, our sewing circle? Um, you know, if it was a, if it was a guy's uh, uh, group about sports and someone was a sportscaster and went to the church, he might be invited to come and talk. Well, um, I was a pastor for 19 years, but for the past 15 years I've been full-time Christian counseling. And I was sitting next to, uh, to Marcia Hathaway at a Christmas uh, dinner. How, how's the grief share going? Fine, you know. If you ever want me to come by, I'd be glad to talk. You would? Yeah. <laughs> so um, she, uh, she invited me to come by and say hello. And um, Let me just tell a bit about my own personal journey. And then I'd like to give you a little introduction to the counseling approach that we take and show you that it, there's some principles that, that do relate to the Greek journey. Would that be all right? Um, I was raised in a Christian home in New Jersey. Um, may, I don't know if that explains my accent or not. Someone said, what kind of accent do you have? I said, New Jersey, Georgia, Canada, Tennessee. They scratched their head. Um, but I was raised in a Christian home, the oldest of four children. Uh, received Christ as my Savior as a young boy. My mother was from Cleveland, Tennessee. My father was from New Jersey. They met in college up north. So until I was 13, I was a Yankee, and then we moved, we moved south. Um, when we moved to the Atlanta area, after a couple years, my mother contracted cancer. Um, during her cancer battle, um, it challenged me to reevaluate my Christian faith. I, I was involved in hobbies, motorcycles, music, school, None of those are, are wrong other than it just kind of left no room in my life for my Christian journey. But when my mother had her, uh, her illness and I saw um, someone that close to me dealing with life and death issues, it basically um, it was a watershed issue for me. If, if I believe the Bible is true, if I believe that Jesus is who I said uh, the Bible says he is, I should, I should be a more committed believer. Uh, I shouldn't be on the fence. So um, a friend of mine went to a college in Florida called Florida Bible College. It was right on the ocean uh, in Hollywood, Florida. And I got to visit, uh, visit the school. And the tennis courts in front and the beach in the back it just inspired me to, to maybe uh, go there for my spiritual journey. But seriously, my parents uh, sponsored me for a year at that school. And during that year, um, with about 900 other students really excited about their, their spiritual journey, uh, I, I really had my faith rekindled. I got the assurance that I was a true Christian. I got the assurance that the Bible isn't just a, a religious book, but it really is God's inspired word, um, that uh, the best life to live would be a life uh, with Jesus as my king. Um, so I remember during that year, a lot of changes took place, including a commitment I made um, that's based on Romans 12, 1 and 2. And some of you might have a Bible with you. If you do, you can turn. Um, I, I brought my 10-pound study Bible with me, so I'll, I'll just read it to you. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is written to those who made um, a commitment to Christ, but it's challenging us to really be wholehearted about our spiritual journey. And Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So he's saying if Jesus died for us on the cross and was radically committed uh, to our deliverance, shouldn't we return the favor by saying, God, I've asked Jesus to be my Savior. 
I'm in in terms of him being the king of my life. I want his will, whatever that is. I want your will, O God. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So some of my classmates and I made that public commitment to, to sign on the dotted line there. Okay, God, we want your will for our life, whatever that is. I was in the band um, playing trumpet, making a joyful noise, and uh, there was a music group that came to the school. I found out that they originated the school called the Internationals. They were full-time ministry that year, traveling around, giving concerts. They came back to their home base, so to speak, and gave, gave a, a concert. And I happened to mention to a friend of mine from the college band, wouldn't it be neat to travel with a group like that and give Christian concerts? Said, yeah, that would be pretty neat. All I said about it. Fast forward to uh, July or so that summer, wasn't sure if I was going to go back to the college or go to the University of Georgia where I had been accepted. And uh, someone bumped into me who was a friend of this fellow from school. He said, John, my, you know, our mutual friend Jim said that if I were to see you, Atlanta is such a small place after all, um, to let you know that this music group, the internationals, need a trumpet player. And he thinks you should audition. And so, of all, you know, all the people I would meet didn't really know this mutual you know, friend. She just bumped into me and, and remembered a comment he made. See, John, what we're telling them. Well, I told my father, make a long story a little bit shorter, he said, we're going up to New Jersey. And you say, where do you need to audition? I said, uh, Mars, Marsville, Pennsylvania. So we're going to um, New Jersey for our, our annual family vacation. Uh, would you like to borrow the family car and drive over and audition? Now, you know God's working when your father's willing to give you the car keys when you're 19. Um, so I said, that would be great. So I went over, auditioned, they accepted me. And a month later, there I was joining the group, um, September 1st, 1974. I'm going to date myself a little bit. Um, we have a photo of, of the 14 members of that group uh, that day, and uh, there was a pretty blonde girl named Linda Shellhammer that was in the group, and a few years later we married Linda Woodward now. So we actually have a picture of the first day we met. Oh. <laughs> uh, so um, that, uh, that became a two-year um, adventure. I finished uh, college and seminary, then we went to Montreal, Quebec, where I was an associate pastor. Um, was there seven years, and during that seven years, I came across the approach of, uh, to Christian counseling that Grace Fellowship uses. I uh, found a copy of Handbook to Happiness by Charles Solomon. So I read this book, and it combines the victorious life message of the New Testament and biblical counseling. Well, as an associate pastor, uh, helping people is one of the main things you do, and I wasn't really satisfied with um, the results from my personal counseling. I could kind of point people, you know, what to do, but I wasn't seeing much life change. So I read this book, and I said, uh, well, this is really helpful. And I called my dad down in Atlanta, which is where they still are. And I said, Dad, I came across this book by Charles Solomon. He said, Charles Solomon, yeah, Charles and Sue are friends of ours. I said, really? Yeah, they've been in our home. We're on the board of a college together. I said, really? So come to find out, my dad goes to the Grace Fellowship training in Atlanta. Grace Fellowship had, I think, six or seven offices. He went training before I did. And so I started to use this model, saw God change people's lives through it. Then we moved to Ontario, Canada, where I was a pastor for 12 years, uh, north of Niagara Falls. If you're still there, you can come and visit us. I could show you Niagara Falls. Um, but it was a quite a nice area to live. And so uh, those 12 years were a time of, of deepening uh, awareness of the need for pastoral counseling that was really 
not just Bible-based, but grace-oriented. Their approaches to biblical counseling that are more like, you know, do this, don't do that, shape up. And although it's biblical, it's more works-oriented, it's not grace-oriented. And so I found as I talked to my fellow pastors that they would either um, use the Bible that way, like a rule book, or they would refer people to a professional. And there's a there's a, certainly a place for referrals, but um, often uh, people would go to a secular counselor and... Uh, talk about their problems, but not really get a solution to, to change. Um, if I push the pause button, I'll mention a man from New Jersey that came down for counseling. I looked at his intake form, and he had been in counseling for 10 years. I said, wow, that's, that's a lot of therapy. And plus, you add up the $100 a session. Not that we charge that, but that's what other people charge. Um, and I said, well, tell me about that. He said, uh, well, I know a lot more about my problems, but my life hasn't changed. 10 years of therapy. So there's a place for referrals, but we believe that there needs to be a Christian spiritual solution, not just a paid friend you know, that you're talking to. Um, and then I saw that my pastors would, would um, I would call it good pastoral care. Uh, this morning, Dale Ellenberg here spoke on Psalm 27, which is a tremendous psalm. So let's say um, you meet with someone, you read a scripture, you pray together. That's wonderful. And it's pastoral care, and it's important. But it doesn't go the full distance that counseling does. Counseling is not only care, but cure. It's saying not only do you need support like this group can offer, but also maybe there's some wires that need to be uncrossed, or maybe there's a piece of the puzzle you don't have, and let's see if we can find that together. And so um, uh, I got a call in 1996 from Charles Solomon. He said, hey, we're we're in the area Um, on a trip driving through Ontario. Can we stop and see you? I said, sure. They came by, I told them more about my interest in his books. He has several. Um, he said, why don't you come to Pigeon Forge for training? I said, Pigeon what? <laughs> I was totally clueless being up north for so long. And uh, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. Uh, yeah, that would be great. So Linda and I come down um, up here in the parkway. There was a, a guest room or a conference room and a motel. So I had the week training. That, that became kind of a call for me to to uh, do a, another degree in counseling, and I went with uh, Chuck to Romania. And during our time teaching the counseling message over there, uh, he was about 70 at the time, um, and uh, I, I saw the need to specialize in ministry. So we moved down here um, August of two, 2001, and uh, after we were settled for about five or six weeks, 9-11 took place. Um, you know that, that affected a lot of things. We were very glad we were over the border with all of our stuff, settled before 9-11 happened. Um, but also that, that also affected our country, didn't it? Uh, just that, that uh, the tremors, you know, that, that terrorism could, could be that devastating. I was actually counseling a fellow when Kathy would come in, Kathy Solomon, Chuck Solomon's daughter, um, come in and say, a plane flew into the World Trade Center. It did. Well, keep us posted, you know. That's kind of how our day unfolded. Uh, so each of us can probably remember uh, where we were at 9-11, just like those of us who are baby boomers can remember where we were when JFK was assassinated. Um, but uh, my mother um, had a, a brave bout with cancer, but on my 19th birthday, she went to be with the Lord. Uh, I was in that music group that I mentioned. She got her cell phone back. This one's not mine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Grandmother. As long as you got your video, that's okay. Um, but uh, 
I was actually um, in Michigan with the music group. Although my mother was sick, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, how, how serious, um, you know, when someone is with a terminal illness, you don't really know sometimes how long they have. And, and uh, I was at this person's home, and uh, I'm always nosy when it comes to books. If I visit you, I'm going to be looking at your bookshelf. And I saw this reference book. Um, it's a topical uh, book where you can A to Z look up a topic and it tells you about it in the Bible. So I flip it open to heaven, H, heaven. And I was reading verses about heaven, thinking about that and wondering uh, about it. And the phone rang. And uh, I'm not an overly mystical person. Hopefully I'm a spiritual person. But when the phone rang, um, this was before cell phones, um, I had an impression in my heart that that was my dad calling. And it was. My host family said, this is your father. And he said, my mother went to be with the Lord. So I went home for her funeral. And during that time, I went through my own grief journey. Those of you who have had a, a loved one who has been very ill for months or years, you know that some of your grief takes place before you lose them. Uh, but then then uh, when you say, um, see you later, you know, then you enter a new level of grief. So uh, my younger sister, uh, my two younger sisters and my younger brother, uh, each went through that that journey. Uh, sometime later, my dad remarried. He remarried a widow uh, who uh, um, had two uh, daughters. So we became the Brady Bunch uh, with uh, with now my two step stepsisters and uh, my stepmother. They've been married all these years. Uh, God has blessed them. They've they've been um, good for each other. Um, but it was hard for me to accept kind of a a. Uh, when my father remarried, like, how do I deal with this? I remember uh, talking to a pastor of a church where we were giving a concert, and I'm saying, I'm having trouble with this. And he, he mentioned to me, it's not like your mother's being replaced. You know, just consider this this stepmother as a, an addition to the family. And so that, that helped me kind of navigate that. But um, uh, God has, God has uh, shown me his sustaining grace uh, in, in my grief journey. And... Uh, I have a plan of reading through the Bible um, on a continual basis, and my bookmark, not only did I read about heaven the day that I heard about my mother's departure, but my bookmark was in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Christ, and it says, because Christ was raised from the dead, that is the guarantee that all believers will be raised as well. So again, that chapter became very precious to me. Not only the prophecy or the promises of heaven, but also the assurance of, of Christ's resurrection. So that's a little bit about, about my, my journey. Um, as a counselor, sometimes people come with various, the technical term is presenting problem. Presenting problem is when someone calls and comes in, and then I'll say, well, well, tell me, you know, why have you come in? And I'll say, well, this is what I'm dealing with. So sometimes people will come because um, they have arrested grief, uh, where not only are they going through a grief process, but... There's a clock on the wall there, about 5.23 or so. If, that, if there was something that got in the way of the gears of that clock, it, it would stop. And in a way, your grief journey is like, like your clock going from 12 all the way back to 12. And so if something gets in, in the way and stops that progress, uh, then much time can go by, years can go by, and you might be still in the same place you were you know, today. So... Um, I remember a man uh, coming to me, and, and he was very close to his brother. I think this man is a Christian businessman in the area. I'm guessing he was like 35 uh, years of age. 
and his brother, who was under 40, uh, uh, was tragically killed unexpectedly. And this fellow was, was stuck in his grief, and he said, you know, I need some counseling. So um, as we walked through that process, the Lord helped him get unstuck so his grief clock could continue to move along. But one of the things I appreciate about the Grace Fellowship counseling approach, it's like a key that unlocks every lock. Um, you know, if you had a key that you wouldn't have to fish through all your, your keys. I have about a dozen keys. I'm so ashamed to say. i got so many keys on my keychain. Linda says, that's going to hurt hurt the car. I'm sorry. I just have a lot of keys. But if you had one key that I can unlock every lock, that would be pretty simple. And in a way, the Christ-centered life is like a key that unlocks every lock. Uh, we counsel people with, with drug addictions or um, depression or panic attacks or marital problems. And even though it's helpful to know a little bit about for example, the grief process, or about drug addiction. Those are more introductory issues to give you a context, but actually the approach that we use is very much a heart-focused approach. In Proverbs we read, uh, guard your heart with all diligence, because from the heart flows the issues of life. So if our heart can be in tune with God, then whatever we're facing, you know, we're going to do better. Does that make sense? So... Uh, I thought maybe in the, in the 15 or 20 minutes I have with you, I would just kind of give you a little introduction to our counseling approach. Um, I think on the booklet here is gracefellowshipinternational.com. If you go to the contact us page, um, you can send me an email. And if you have a question or if you'd like some additional information, I have some other material in brief I'd be glad to send you. Um, but uh, how about if I just give you a little bit of an introduction? Would that, would that be okay? Um, I warned you that I like to doodle. So, um, Phyllis uh, had asked earlier about um, an account in uh, the book of Exodus about Moses. And the Old Testament does give a bit of a, not only literal history, but it it also gives us kind of a a map, a symbolic map of the Christian life. And so... um, let me erase that. Yes. yes. They would. Is there yeah. It's happening anyway. So. Okay. I was hoping to go to that. <laughs> okay, so um, over here we'll have Egypt. So in the book of um, the book of Genesis uh, talks about Israel going uh, into Egypt. Joseph, the great uh, leader. Um, becomes really prime minister of Egypt, and there's a tremendous story in Genesis about Joseph, not the technical dream code, but uh, everything else is there. Um, and Joseph is used of God to deliver uh, deliver the, the ancient world in terms of providing the food supply. So they end up in Egypt for about 400 years. Um, but uh, the book of Exodus uh, has these ominous words in Exodus chapter 1. There arose a king in Egypt that did not remember Joseph. Uh-oh. Um, and Israel had multiplied to the point where the Egyptians got threatened by, look at look at the population of Israel. You know, if they, if they decide to turn on us, you know, things are going to go bad. So they start to oppress Israel. Matter of fact, they, they force um, uh, the male babies to be thrown into the Nile. So they're, they're really oppressed. And Israel calls on the Lord, and um, God hears their cry and delivers them. So that's what the book of Exodus is about. Well, if we let this represent the Red Sea, and if you could use your imagination here a little bit. So there's the Red Sea. 
And if you've, if you've seen Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments and all that, you see the excitement of, of how God raises up Moses, the deliverer. And um, after the ten plagues, the Pharaoh says, get out of here, you know, I'm done. And so they, um, they start to leave Egypt, but then Pharaoh changes his mind, you know, who's going to do all of our slave labor? And he starts to send out his troops after them. And again, they call on the Lord, and there's an exciting miracle where there's a crossing of the Red Sea, and miraculously, God parts the waters, they cross over, um, the Egyptian army chases them, and uh, God allows the waters to come back to, uh, to conquer the Egyptian army. So that's, that's the exodus. It's a Greek word meaning to exit or to be delivered. So then, the next part of our story, we're in the wilderness. So if you like geography, you can take a look at, at how... Um, You've got Egypt down here and the little nation of Israel, about the size of New Jersey, pretty small piece of real estate. Uh, but they're, they're in transit from Egypt uh, to Canaan, or, or the promised land, what we call Israel. Um, but they arrive, arrive at this uh, mountain called Mount Sinai. And there God gives the Ten Commandments, and he basically says, I am the God who redeemed you, therefore I want you to live in covenant relationship with me. Well, um, they didn't keep the Ten Commandments too well. None of us do. That's why we need a Savior. Um, but eventually they come to the border of the Promised Land. So I'll uh, let this represent another body of water. And this is called um, the Jordan River. Jordan River. Aren't you amazed with my artistic ability? you just in awe, aren't you? Um, they come to the border of, of Canaan and uh, God says to them, I've given four centuries for the Canaanites to repent. They're, they're immoral, child-sacrificing, godless people. I'm going to simultaneously judge them and give Israel their land. So he said, go in and take the land. Well, uh, spies check it out. Um, after 40 days they come back 10 of them say this really is a great land flowing with milk and honey but there's walled cities, there's giants no way we can take them so they, they advise the people not to go in Joshua and Caleb say if God delivered us from Egypt then he can bring us into the promised land well the people said we're not going to go in so due to rebellion and unbelief even though they're out of Egypt they end up getting sidetracked does anybody remember for how long? 40 long years. So they get sidetracked in the wilderness. Now, God was faithful. He gave them manna. He took care of them. There was a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night guiding them. A lot of amazing things happened. Um, But uh, finally, Moses dies, and uh, the book of Joshua um, unfolds. And here, Joshua, it takes over from Moses, and God says to Joshua, all right, now's the time. It's been 40 years. Every day they were spying Canaan that they refused to go in. There's a, a year here until the unbelieving generation died off. So now it's time to go in. And so God says that they are to take um, him at his word and by faith cross the Jordan River. Excuse me, sir. Uh, there's no tunnel and there's no bridge. <laughs> he said, that's all right. I'm going to part the Jordan River. You just trust me. So the priests carry this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant, a very special part of the tabernacle um, worship structure. And as they step into the river, 
a miracle happens and God stops the Jordan River up here. And just like the Red Sea, there's kind of a parallel. And uh, he stops the river and the Israelites cross over on dry ground into Canaan. So the symbolism, this is real history, but this, this represents bondage. Before we know God personally through Jesus Christ, we're stuck. We're condemned because of our sin. We, we can't have freedom spiritually. Uh, we can't have, have confidence and hope beyond this life. And so we're stuck. And that's, that reminds us of their years in Egypt. Um, but Jesus said, I've, came, I've come that you might have life, but also have it more abundantly. So Canaan is a picture of the abundant life. So the verse in John 10.10 says this, the thief, he's talking kind of in a shepherd imagery, the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. And we would say that's really what Satan tries to do in our lives. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life, and also that you might have it more, what? Abundantly. A life that's full, a life that's meaningful, a life that can navigate the grief journey in a healthy way. And so uh, the book of Joshua describes... Uh, the process of them conquering the land, and uh, there's uh, there's some battles to fight. So I'm going to wow you again with more artwork. So this represents Jericho, and for them to take the land, you know, Jericho is right on Main Street, and so um, Joshua meets this mysterious angel called the Captain of the Lord's Host, and uh, Joshua submits to God, and God says. Um, I parted the Jordan River. That was the evacuation announcement to the Canaanites. Out of the pool. You know, if you want to leave, now's the time. But if not, then you you proceed. So um, the angel gives them a very strange battle plan. He said, march around Jericho, you know, with the Ark of the Covenant, blow the trumpets, do that once a day for a week, and then seven laps on the last day. And then what did they do at the end? They shouted, right? And then... The children's song says, and the walls came and tumbling down. God knocked down the walls. So this is real redemption history, friends, but it's also symbolic. Because in the Christian life, we can know Jesus as our Savior, but we can be sidetracked in the wilderness, which symbolizes, um, we call it the self-life. If you and I have self at the center of our life, where we're living out of just our own strength, coping based on what we think is best, living out of an identity that's been assigned to us by other people. I ask you, who are you? We each, of, each of us have kind of an, our own identity. Does that make sense? Our own sense of who we are. But often that identity has been shaped by what other people have said, and sometimes it's really um, identity theft because you're, you're living out of identity that's not really uh, positive and secure. So we call this, this stage of the Christian life the self-life. And most people that come to Grace Fellowship for Counseling are Christians, but they're stuck in the wilderness. Now, maybe you're wondering, if that's the case, and Jesus came to give us abundant life, how do I get here? Well, our favorite verse for that is uh, Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. And... 
you may have seen uh, in sporting events, you know, the guys with the, the placard, John 3.16. So the most famous person, verse in the Bible is about how to get out of Egypt, and that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whoever does what? Believe. Believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So what John 3.16 is to help people get out of Egypt, Galatians 2.20 is to get into Canaan. So, drum roll, please. Galatians 2.20. Uh, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer the old me that's trying to live, but Christ lives in me. So, the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My friend Chuck Solomon, when he was 18 years of age at a little church in Mossheim, Tennessee. Does anybody know Mossheim? It's a little town out yonder. You know, he, he got saved, but uh, he got sidetracked here until an October day in 1965, and he really couldn't go on another day. He was very successful in business. He was an aircraft engineer. Uh, he loved the Lord. He was the chairman of the deacons in his church. Maybe that contributed to his stress. I don't know. Um, you know, he, he memorized much of the Bible, but he had inferiority and inadequacy and insecurity and worries and doubts and fears and frustration and anger. Am I cheering you up? Um, he, he was a mess. I mean, he was on psychotropic meds. Even though he was, he was out of Egypt, he loved the Lord. But on that October day in 1965, Galatians 2.20, it's like the light went on and the Holy Spirit showed him what it really meant. And when that happened, a nice side effect happened the awareness that Christ actually lived in him. You know, Christ is not only in heaven, but by the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in us as we're believers. That started to register, and this what happened to the inferiority, the inadequacy, the insecurity, the worries, doubts, fears, frustration, that evaporated. It's like, what happened to me? You know, Well, now, now the engineer in him you know, kicked in. He, he thought, okay, what happened, and how can I help other people? So he actually got a master's in counseling and then a doctorate in education to, to take this message of the New Testament and put it into a step-by-step -step counseling approach. Now, how does this relate to our grief journey? Uh, when we're in the wilderness, we tend to identify ourselves by our circumstances. Now, think about the issue of identity. When you, when you lose a loved one, how does that affect your sense of identity? If, if your wife and your husband dies, what do you call it now? You get a title, don't you? A widow. Yeah. If, you're, if you're married and your wife dies, you're a widow. You get an identity. Am I right? And, yeah. and uh, if you have a complicated situation, right, where, where you have a loved one that dies under other circumstances, it's like a, even a more specific label you get, you know. And so we can... We're not, we're not denying that we're in that situation, but what we're saying is that that's not our essential identity. The Bible says our identity, when we realize that Christ is in us, is that our identity, the Bible says, believe it or not, when the saints come marching in, the Bible says we are saints, we are set apart for God. And there's a bunch of other things in the New Testament that you're God's workmanship, you're his son and daughter, your, um, the apple of his eye, all kinds of good things. And so your identity is positive and unshakable because you're in Christ. Does that make sense? So when you really accept this by faith, 
It's like you have a whole new resource to deal with your grief. Not that you're dismissing it, but now you're able to cope with it better because you're saying, yes, other people may see me as a widow or a widower or whatever, or an orphan, but God says I'm his child. And that's a positive, unshakable identity. Does that make sense? Another thing about being in the wilderness is that we, we try to cope the best we can. And some people cope by just saying, well, I'm just going to pour myself into my job, or I'm just going to watch sports you know, 24-7, or turn to alcohol or, or drugs, or, or just try to you know, pretend it didn't happen, right? Denial. Those are what we call coping strategies. And usually they break down sooner or later, don't they? Well, in terms of Christ living through us, basically we have a whole new resource. And that resource is the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says when you realize that Christ is in you, that the Holy Spirit lives in you, you can yield to him and he will give you a new source of power. You don't have to cope in your own strength with even some help me prayers. It's better. Um, my favorite illustration in the New Testament is, is the vineyard picture in John chapter 15. Jesus says, and this is just before he was crucified, and he had told the disciples he was leaving. So they were going through their grief journey. What do you mean you're leaving? You know, can you imagine having Jesus as your best friend and Jesus says he's leaving? Wait a minute, what are you saying you're leaving? And he's saying, but the, the comforter is going to come and he, he's my representative. He's he's. Theologically, we could say he's part of the Godhead, right? I am manifested through the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to send you another comforter, and he'll be with you forever. So I'm going to be with you in him. So just like we, we might say that, um, let's say uh, a loved one um, dies, and uh, but we still have their children and grandchildren with them. We might say, well, we still have some of that person with us because we have their children and grandchildren with us, right? This kind of... Well, it's like we say, well, the Holy Spirit is Jesus in us. And if we yield to him and we cultivate our walk with God through, through the word of God and prayer and unpack some of, some of the teaching you see in the booklet there, then we have a whole new resource for living. So we do have not only life, but life more abundantly. And so um, these are just, I'm just giving you a little bit of an introduction you know, to, to the counseling approach. It's Christ-centered because we believe that the Christ-centered life is like a key that unlocks every lock. Um, some concluding comments. When I was a pastor in Canada, um, there was a lovely young lady who went to her wedding, but she was struggling with lupus. And when she married, uh, her husband knew that they weren't really sure um, how long she would live. And she lived a, a few years, and she died. And we, we grieved her loss. Uh, her mother lived uh, about an, two hours away from us. And I remember um, they were friends of ours also from Montreal. There were some relatives in our church in Montreal that, that uh, were part of this scenario. And I remember visiting the mother in her home a couple hours away. Lynn and I were there. And I noticed I, um, she, she showed us, let me show you something. She brought us into her bedroom, and there was a huge portrait of her 20-something-year-old daughter that died. Now, it was a beautiful picture, but it was almost like a shrine. And the problem with it is she had another daughter who was about 15 years of age, and she was so fixated on the daughter that wasn't there that she was neglecting <coughs> the daughter that was there. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So we don't want to minimize how we are missing our loved one, 
But sometimes we try to fill the void with the memory or with uh, other things when Jesus says, I want to be your supreme relationship. The Bible summarized the whole... Someone asked Jesus one time, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? And there's, what, 600 and something. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you got those two, pretty much that summarizes everything else. So when we receive God's love, love him in return, to love one, of, one another, that's a tremendous help. Um, the, the illustration that, that also might help in terms of the grief journey is um, if you get a, a cut, let's say it's a really deep cut, you need some stitches. Everybody freaked out just thinking about it. Um, but let that, let that deep cut represent your loss, okay? Uh, you're a nurse, so you're not freaked out by it. No. Um, but if you have a deep cut and it needs needs care, if it's not tended to, what can happen? Uh, infection, um, necrosis, gangrene. Not good. No. Not good. And so instead of healing, it's going to be complicated. You see the parallel here. And so what used to happen? First of all, we had to disinfect it, and then we had to support it with some stitches. Now, does that mean if you disinfect it and stitch it that the next day, oh, it's, it's all healed? No. The, there is a process of healing, but the deeper the wound, the longer it takes to heal, but we need to disinfect it and we need to support it. So, friends, today I've been talking to you about disinfecting it by letting Jesus be the love of your life, that his, his grace, his hope, his life in you becomes your supreme resource. That's the greatest disinfectant I know. But also there's the support. You've got it right here. You've got this group. You've got other friends. You've got family. Um, hopefully you've got um, people in your life that you can just um, relate to. And, and we all need each other, don't we? Galatians 6 says, bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so that's important. But I, I just encourage you, ask God to cleanse the wound. Ask God to give you that support that you need. But realize that it does take time. And that's okay. And the, the time is different for each one of us. Don't let someone judge you saying, well, let me see, well, how, much, how many months has it been? Well, by now you should be, no. Everyone of us has our own unique journey. The, the healing process is unique to each one of us. But if we're disinfected, if we're supported, and if, using my illustration here, we're allowing God to show us more and more the potential of the Christ-centered life, then um, we're going to have we're going to have comfort. We're going to have uh, uh, strength. And uh, I hope that if you're, if I've got you a little bit curious, um, drop me a line at Grace Fellowship. Uh, we do have a conference that we're giving here the first weekend in March. In case uh, you know Russ has been to it, um, Phyllis has. But um, you know where we kind of summarize our counseling approach on a Friday night and Saturday. So uh, if you want, if you want a merit badge, you, you come and check that out. I was driving um, home from Chattanooga yesterday listening to a songwriter that I really like, and I'd like to close with this lyrics from a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. And uh, for many years, his music has, has helped me, and I, I read a book by his wife, and they, um, they adopted uh, a girl from, from uh, the Far East, and uh, they have two boys of their own, but um, tragically one day, uh, a boy, uh, the boy who was driving their their vehicle came zipping out of the driveway, and their little um, 
Oriental daughter ran excitedly to meet him and he didn't see her and she was killed right in their driveway. And so the trauma of, of um, the grief and then, of course, the complicated grief, you know, the, the older brother is the one, you know, that was driving the vehicle when the accident happened. Um, the, the infection we talked about, um, the infection can include guilt, thinking, you know, I should have done this, or, I, you know, I, if I only I did this, those are some things that will stop your grief clock, guilt, uh, feeling of condemnation, or we can blame God. God, why did you let that happen? Some of that's natural in our grief journey, but if we hold on to that, it's going to stop our grief clock, and we need to process that. And just as God knocked down the Jerichos, if we have a false belief, then that needs to be replaced with truth. Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will do what? To set you free. So part of being unstuck in our grief journey is sometimes there is a false belief that gets stuck in there that we need to let go of. Um, but uh, Stephen Curtis Chab and his wife um, did draw upon God's grace during their grief journey, and this song is called See You in a Little While. I hold your hand and watch as the sun slowly fades. Far in the distance, the Father is calling your name. And it's time for you to go home. And everything in me wants to hold on. But I'm letting you go with this goodbye kiss and this promise. I'll see you in a little while. I'll see you in a little while. It won't be too long now. We'll see it on the other side. The wait was only the blink of an eye. That's a nice thought, isn't it? So I'm not going to say goodbye because I'll see you in a little while. And just one more thing before I let you go. Please tell my little girl I love her. Though I'm sure she already knows. And ask the Father to please tell the Son that we're ready and waiting for Him to come. Yes. (laughs) Even so, come Lord Jesus. I'll see you in a little while. I'll see you in a little while. It won't be too long now. We'll see it on the other side. The wait was only the blink of an eye. So I'm not going to say goodbye, because I'll see you in a little while. Maybe you'll teach me all the songs they sing in heaven. Maybe you'll show me how you can fly. And I'll hear you laugh again. And we won't remember when we were not together, and this time is forever. I'll see you in a little while. I'll see you in a little while. It won't be too long now. We'll see it on the other side. The wait was only the blink of an eye. So I'm not going to say goodbye, because I'll see you in a little while. So email me, and I can send you links to that as well. But can I pray for us as we wrap up? Lord, I thank you for each one who is in this room, and pray your comfort for them. I pray for your peace that passes all understanding. And Lord, in this talk, I I pray that just as the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt and eventually brought into the promised land, that each one of of us would know Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord because Jesus died on the cross and rose again to forgive us and give us a home in heaven. So Lord, so often we're sidetracked in the wilderness, living out of our own resources, living out of our old identity. And we don't realize that as believers, when Jesus died, that the old man died with him, and when he was raised, that we were raised with him, and that Christ lives in us by his Spirit. Show us how, Lord, to let go and let you, to surrender to you and trust Christ to live his life in us and through us. And as it happens, Lord, disinfect us if we have infection in our belief system. Lord, support us uh, with caring relationships, and most of all, your support, so that as we continue on this journey, we will continue to discover more and more of your healing power and your sustaining grace. Bless and guide us as 2017 unfolds, and may we receive your comfort and pass it on to someone else. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
thanks for inviting me, and let me know if I can be of service in the future. Okay? Thank so you, John. You're welcome. That was wonderful. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you.